thank Pastor Mike and those who arrange the formal part of our worship and song. They've been just been spirit-filled as they choose hymns. I, I know you're noticing that, especially in relationship to the text of the book of Job that we're studying. It's, every song is a sermon. Every song is a sermon that you have the opportunity to teach and to preach to one another. And that's what worship is. It's Colossians 3, it's Ephesians 5. The New Testament doesn't speak much about song in worship. It certainly does in eschatological scenes, doesn't it, in the book of Revelation? But we just really have two passages from Acts chapter 2 to Revelation 3.15 before we get into the history that's to come. It speaks of music, both written by the same author and they pretty much say the same words, but they're powerful words, aren't they? Song is essential, especially song that's saturated with good doctrine. Uh, and we have the opportunity to instruct and exhort one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And... Um, these have been spirit-filled folks that have just done a tremendous job um, selecting, by his help, I'm sure, uh, appropriate hymns that really underpin the, the theology of the book of Job that we're studying. So helpful to me before I preach, and uh, certainly helpful to you as you live out what we're learning of this book so far by way of introduction. And uh, God the Spirit is afoot in our midst, my friends. When you have a four-year-old boy at the dinner table with his family, just shout out to the Lord from his chair, Lord Jesus, forgive me and clean my heart. Amen. God, the Spirit's afoot. I showed my Bible study class this morning, a, a long list of specific answers to prayer in relationship to our church's emphasis on prayer this month. And it's, it's certainly a testimony that from the book of James in the fifth chapter that the fervent, righteous prayers of the righteous ones avail much. God answers our prayer all the time, but it's proof positive in the month of February that when there's an emphasis on prayer, there's an added emphasis of his moving. So I would say as you pray this month, I'm certain that you have been incentivized spiritually to continue to pray in following months, similar to the way you've prayed this month. So that this month doesn't merely remain a special emphasis on prayer. Maybe, maybe this month would take us all to a, a higher level of spiritual discipline of prayer patterns that could become our new normal in that regard. And that next February, when we have this emphasis of prayer, it'll do the same. And that you've all understood that prayer really is a catalyst to the Spirit of God working in us and through us and among us and so forth. But thank you. Praise God for uh, worship and song. You and I are not the audience when we worship. I hope you understand that. 
God never designed the New Testament church to function with performers on a stage and audience and seats. We worship an audience of one, our creator, and he's holy and reverent and distinct, holy other. And when we worship him, we worship him in spirit and in truth and according to the content of his word uh, towards one another. And thank you for doing that for me this morning and for doing that among one another. Let's have a word of prayer. The added emphasis on prayer this morning and this whole month has been necessary. Um, I have no problem doing that as often as we can. Because it's part of certainly pastoral epistles. Uh, it's an emphasis that we're trying to bring a greater balance to our public worship in that regard. And we're going to continue to try to do that. I will tell you, it would take uh, probably a two-week introduction to this book and may turn it into a five-week introduction to this book. <laughs> but I, I, I trust that you remain patient with us as we get through it. I don't I really hesitate to race through um, any of this information, but we'll do our best to conclude our introduction to the book of Job this morning. If you're a guest here, we try to preach through one book a year in the morning service. If it's a shorter book, maybe two. Um, join me in a word of prayer as we continue uh, to study this morning, okay? Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you so much for your goodness to us and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and as your children in him loved with an everlasting love and loved unto the end of the age we gather together in this small group this morning to lift up our clean hands and pure hearts to you prepared for worship and we pray Lord that everything that you've heard and seen and will hear and see will be acceptable in your sight our strength and our redeemer we need the help of thy spirit as we continue to understand you who remains the God of Job and our God. Help us, Lord, to understand who you are. We seek to know you. We seek to be known of you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. There were two game shows that, um, one in particular, my mom enjoyed watching, and as I got older, one that I enjoyed watching. I don't know if you remember uh, Let's Make a Deal, or The Price is Right. If you're younger, you're going to have to get on YouTube and Google a few episodes and laugh a little. Have mercy on us for enjoying those shows. But both shows, whether it be Let's Make a Deal or The Price is Right, it came time for the contestants who would progress in succeeding at various stages of winning in those shows to have to make a choice. You can take what's in your hand, right? or you can choose what's behind door number one, door number two, or door number three. Occasionally, on The Price is Right, the producers would let the audience, the television viewer, know what was behind those doors. And we would know. And so we would know what was in their hand. 
And we would know that door number one had a little tiny transistor radio. <laughs> door number two might have a year's supply of milk for your family from a local grocery store. And door number three would have a brand new car. Right? And so they would have certain sum of money in their hand that they could take and go home with that money or they could choose between a door. And if you knew what was behind that door, you're on the edge of your seat saying, three, three, pick three, pick three. Don't go home with what you have. And boy, they'd pick two and get milk. <laughs> it's like, oh, the ups and downs of that show, I'm sure we all needed counseling. It always amazed me how well those contestants that lost so poorly did. At least they appeared to on TV. We don't know what they were like in the parking lot <laughs> afterwards. We had the privilege at times of knowing what was behind the curtain, knowing what was behind the door. And I want us this morning to consider the benefit that we have had of the fullness of revealed scripture, especially in certain contexts. In some heightened realities in the Bible, we can read them in a more settled manner because we know what's behind the curtain, so to speak, of revealed truth. Especially when we study books like Revelation or even consider the life of Christ in the Gospels. I even believe in Isaiah 6, we gain a perspective that those living in a moment, the Scriptures revealed at a time, a moment of crisis. There's a perspective they didn't have that we do have. It becomes an immense help to us as we read. Reading Revelation, we have glorious realities and scenes of heaven, don't we? On earth, we know the consequences of both the trumpet and the bull judgments and the destructions of the Antichrist and Satan himself, but we know the glorious scenes of heaven where God is in control. From the scenes of heaven, scenes of the land opening the scroll, descriptions of large-scale forces of judgment marching from above to bring about God's will of retribution on earth. We confidently know that the divine decrees of God ultimately win, even though the faithful of God do suffer. Our hearts are settled to know the judge of all the earth will do right both now and in the future. Even if we consider the life of Christ, he was fully man and fully God. We know from Isaiah 53 that it pleased God to afflict the Son, who was the spotless lamb slaughtered for our sin. We know from John 17 in high, Christ's high priestly prayer that Christ's own purpose was from the Father. It was heaven's omnipotent solution for the consequences of the sin of mankind. We know from Ephesians 1 that in eternity past, God decreed to have victory over man's sin by the sacrifice of his son and the spiritual and ultimately physical salvation of man's soul from sin and even a sin-cursed world. God decreed to win in a heavenly realm in eternity past, while he allowed his own son in human flesh 
to suffer as a spotless lamb so that we could be saved. In Isaiah 6, even, with the grave situation in which we find Isaiah and his people in captivity, God opens up a glimpse of his throne room for Isaiah to see. And it gives Isaiah perspective. Isaiah 6 and verse 1 says, In the year King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Verse 4 says, The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Again, this reference too is testimony to the benefit we have of knowing a more full story, so to speak, of God's sovereignty and ultimate victory over the things created, fallen, and falling, even though we know he is faithful. Of these three biblical examples, Christ's example stands out to me, one that we can admire the most in relationship to Job's situation. Christ was certainly innocent. God appoints, it was pleasing to him to afflict his son, and he appoints his suffering for his people, for his own glory. Now, for those of you that love the deeper things of Scripture, I'm not saying here this morning that Job is the type of Christ. That's another discussion. But we all know Christ was sacrificed for our sin. He was the appeasement of God's wrath on our behalf. God's retributive justice was enacted on Christ because of my sin, because of our sin. But the point is this. God appointed and allowed suffering on his son who was blameless. For reasons of God's mercy and grace alone, a mystery to us, he allowed his precious and unique and holy son to be mutilated and cursed in our place. And he's still a good and heavenly father. The Lord Jesus even asked if it was his father's will for that imminent affliction to be removed from his own reality, yet it pleased the father to bruise the son. Again, these are several biblical allusions that we are familiar with that settle our hearts because we know God ultimately wins as he orchestrates what is best for us behind the curtain of heaven, if you will, even if it includes suffering. So too the life of Job. We read the book knowing what ultimately happens. The curtain's been pulled back for us. God remains eternally unchanging as to who he is and what he allows according to his own decrees. What Job endures outside of Christ may be the worst suffering experience in human history, and yet we have the privilege of having the word of God to realize his sovereignty over Job's circumstances And we know, too, how God restores to Job everything that was taken from him. 
sets him on his feet to normalcy again. But I'm headed here today at this juncture for this reason. We have the blessing of revealed scripture to more easily entrust ourselves to a faithful creator, but Job didn't have what we enjoy in that regard, obviously. So we must deeply admire what Job did know about his God and how he did live fearing him. We should appreciate and endear ourselves to Job's ability by grace to be enabled to hold with conviction what he did know of the Lord and how he was enabled by God to wrestle his flesh to entrust himself to God even though his flesh was weak. Maybe here if I mention you'll recall Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 14 that we studied a couple years ago on Sunday mornings. We discussed this morning about the blessing of spiritually knowing what's behind the curtain and what a blessing that is to us, yet we are still finite and know so little, and yet we still need to trust. But Solomon said, in the day of prosperity, be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. Life is not to be mourned or squandered, one godly man said. Rather, it is to be enjoyed while time, resources, and health permit. And life is certainly worth the living as it is a gift from God. Becoming more familiar with him will certainly help us navigate the treacherous waters that life has. As I stated last week, the attributes of God's greatness have always humbled us. And the attributes of his goodness have always endeared us to him. If I was to take a moment and open up to the audience, you could tell me what the attributes of his goodness are. I believe all of the attributes of God's goodness are evident in the book of the Job, in the book of Job even though they're not specifically mentioned. We're going to talk about some of those this morning. If you're a guest this morning, go back to last week and we discussed all the attributes of God's greatness, his, his infiniteness. Those are attributes that are exclusively um, his. The attributes of his goodness, though, endear us to him because in Christ we can in a finite way replicate these attributes. But Job knew God both in his greatness and his goodness, and he clung to God so that he could say certain things. The author of Job could say, like in Job chapter 1 and verse 22, after he had lost everything but still had his own health, through all this Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. The curtain wasn't open to him, but yet he knew enough about God of his attributes and his greatness to hold him by conviction in this manner. 
The attributes of God's goodness focus on his moral qualities. You'll examine these with the attributes of his purity, his integrity, and his love in specific. It was an act of God's love to allow Job's faith to be strengthened. And I think we all should remember that. It was an act of God's love to allow Job's faith not only to be strengthened, it was an act of God's love to give, to take away, and then to give back to Job. As described in chapter 42, verses 10 to 17. What about God's integrity? We can love, and certainly we can have integrity. But God's integrity focuses on his genuineness, his truthfulness, his faithfulness. By genuineness, we mean that God is real. In contrast to the false gods of the ancient Near East of his time, God was real. In Psalm 96 and verse 5, the psalmist says, For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. The idols were created by man. However, God was real, for he made the heavens. Where many of these supposed gods roamed. What about God's veracity? What does that mean? Again, for those of you that didn't have the opportunity, like quite a handful here did, of growing up in Sunday school or maybe a Christian day school where you're learning all these things of God, it's good for us to know these things of his greatness and his goodness. But what of God's veracity? All this simply means is when God communicates, folks, he does so accurately and never with error. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 9, you can certainly reference that here. Solomon claimed to have been moved by God in the production of even his own book. God spoke, that's inspiration. When God speaks, God inspires, God preserves. We end up with his will to mankind and it is without error. It is, it is accurate. God is loving. God is integrity and God is truthfulness, but God is faithfulness as well. By faithfulness, we understand that God keeps his commitments. The fact that the book of Job has a good ending, as demonstrated by speaking to Job and graciously blessing his latter life, indicates that God proves himself true in taking care of his own. The psalmist says that God will never allow his righteous ones to go without their necessary food. God is faithful. And of course, yes, God is love. God's love is this, my friends. God's love is the eternal giving of himself. And for us, that's in the person 
of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It is the eternal giving of himself. This was true of the members of the Godhead before time ever began. Love is shown in Job by God's benevolence towards his creatures. God demonstrated his concern for the welfare of them, both in his creating and in his sustaining. And if you've read through the book of Job, you certainly saw that in chapter 38 and verse 4 through chapter 41 and verse 26. This also demonstrates God's mercy. God's loving compassion was demonstrated to Job by speaking to him and towards his friends by forgiving them. How about God's grace? We can be gracious. God is grace. Isn't God gracious? If you've just done a cursory reading of Job, immediately you see God's grace in saving Job. God had graced Job with a family that loved each other and was completely, as a family unit, worshipers of God. They celebrated each other. They celebrated God together. So apparently Job had a household of saved people. Job was graced with influence in his community, his region, really his world. He could have been the most wealthy, influential man in the East of that time. Job was graced with friends, a lot of friends. Even the friends that came to instruct him first came to mourn with him. Remember, we read earlier in silence for seven days, they grieved alongside their friend Job. Again, we know what's behind the curtain in chapter 41 and verse 42. And we know what was restored to Job by grace when Job didn't yet know at the outset of his trial. God is so gracious to Job. He's so gracious to us. Job knew that spiritual success is never spelt M-O-N-E-Y or S-A-M-E. Job knew success is knowing and understanding the progressive will of God for his life. And that's what success is for us as we know God and by his grace seek to live his character. Job was a man loved of God and saved by grace, and he loved and lived graciously doing the will of the Lord. He feared God, and he kept his commandments. So consider with me the value of walking with the Lord by his love and his grace now. When none of us knows what's behind the curtain of our tomorrow... We need to appreciate how this persevering grace and this lifestyle lived by the grace of God brings us stability as it brought Job stability when the storm raged. How about God's love and grace applied to the universe that he had created? This is a big topic. God's relationship to the universe 
is discussed really in the book of Job in five areas. His plan, his creation, his preservation, his providence, and his kingdom. You say, wow, I came to get a sermon this morning, not go to Sunday school class. Well, I told you, we've really got to understand God <laughs> if we're going to understand how God underpinned the existence of Job spiritually and physically before we study the suffering of Job. What about God's plan for the universe? In Psalm 33, 11, we see that God's counsel stands forever. In Proverbs 16, 4, other wisdom literature, the author states that Yahweh, the Lord, has made everything for its own end, which even includes the wicked for a time of disaster. In Proverbs 16, 9, we see that a man plans his course, but the Lord determines the steps of his life. This strongly affirms that the Lord has a plan. Well, the book of Job does not specifically refer to God having a foreordained plan. The nature of his creation and sustaining of it assume that he does. This implies a master architect and it's certainly reflected in chapter 38 and verse, and verse 2 when Job is challenged by God with a question. Who is this that darkens my counsel? It's also implied when Job reflects in chapter 42 and verse 2 that none of God's purposes can be thwarted. It's further suggested in chapter 14 and verse 5 when Job indicates that man's days are determined. And in chapter 36 and verse 32 where Elihu stated that evening lightning strikes where God directs it to. God has a thorough plan for what he's created because he is the creator. His Creation of the universe is spoken forth with a plan. According to his plan, God created the universe with a systematic reality to it. God also created the animals mentioned in his two speeches. He created Behemoth, chapter 40, and Leviathan, chapter 41. God indicates in chapter 40 and verse 15 by implication that man is also created by him. And certainly that's affirmed in the book of Psalms and Proverbs chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, which teaches the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps were broken up and the skies drip with dew. God is good by the way he preserves his universe. What about his preservation of his universe? Preservation involves God's protection of his creation from all harm and destruction unto his ultimate purposes. God's preservation is about his provision for every need of his creation, Charles Hodge says. All things out of God owe their continuance to their existence and all their properties and powers to the will of God himself. 
in Job, God's sustaining of the universe, the laws and the processes of nature, such as storms and lightning and animals and man are all part of God's preservation of his good world. And if we're going to believe in his creation and preservation, we must understand and believe in his providence for his universe. The word providence comes from a Latin word which means to see forward. This relates to God's governing and guiding all creations to its appointed end, his plan. God's direction is seen in his managing the world. And you see that again in these creative illusions in Job chapter 38, Job chapter 39, and all the way through Job chapter 41. God knows ahead. God knows ahead. Our hearts rest in God's sovereign control of that universe. God's sovereignty is not an attribute per se, but a prerogative. That an it's an outgrowth of the absolute perfection of his superior personhood. Hodge also said, if God be a spirit and therefore a person infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being and perfections, the creator and preserver of the universe, he is of right, its absolute sovereign. The sovereignty of God is the ground of peace and confidence to all his people. They rejoice that the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, that neither necessity nor chance nor the folly of man nor the malice of Satan controls the sequence of events and all their issues. Infinite wisdom, love, and power belong to him, our great God and Savior, into whose hands all power in heaven and earth has been committed. His creating the world in Job reflects Yahweh's kingship by his managing the world in chapter 38, verses 12 to 38. And in the animal kingdom in the same chapter, Job also assumes Yahweh's kingship by questioning his rulership in chapter 40 and verse 8. This is also reflected by God when he challenges Job to put on the robes of divine royalty himself. In addition, God told Job in chapter 41 and verse 3 that everything under heaven belonged to him. Also, God had set up, again, those larger animals as underlords in his animal kingdom. Zuck says this, God's many references to creation are highly appropriate because by them he was addressing his ownership of the universe while at the same time refuting Job's accusation of deprivation. God did not actually deprive Job of anything because he, as creator, owns all that is in the universe. The founder is the owner. The creator is the ruler. Well, folks, that's a little bit more than a bird's eye view of the theology of God in the book of Job. But he is the main divine character of the book, so we need to understand him. 
really is compared to us. There is another whole theology of man in the book of Job that we could spend another 45 minutes discussing. And we'll touch on those aspects of anthropology, if you will, or the study of man, or God's perspective of man, man's perspective of himself throughout the book uh, as we study it together. I'd like to move forward to the end of our conclusion here. with a quote that really settled my heart in relationship to not only what understanding how Job persevered through his time of trial because of how he knew God, but especially for some of us who are going through some particular unique and difficult times in varying degrees right now. I read this and it was a blessing to my heart. Someone who always thought that the book of Job was about pain and suffering said this. I am come to the conclusion that Job is not really about the problem of pain. Suffering contributes to the ingredients of the story, not its central theme. Just as a cake has many ingredients in the creation of something good, Job is not about suffering. It merely uses such ingredients in its larger story, which concerns even more important questions, cosmic Questions. Seen as a whole, Job is primarily about faith in its starkest form. The point of the book is not suffering or where is God when it hurts. The point is faith. Where is Job when it hurts? How is he responding? To understand this book, I think we all must begin there. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we know both Old and New Testaments. The just shall live by faith. Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, great men and women of the family of God endured the deepest of affliction and celebrated the greatest of glories. I pray, Lord, that our faith in you, who you are, both in your greatness and in your goodness, would be challenged as we study the story together this wisdom story I pray that this study would bring us closer practically to intimately understanding you as you seek to intimately know us Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, I was studying. I'll get the name of the book. I was reading a book on uh, my last flight that I had. I'll, it's, it's in my, my digital stuff. It's just, I think it's called Not a Fan. 
And it's really about living by faith. Instead of being, being a fan of who Jesus is, a fanatic, it's about living by faith. And he has a little treatise in there of Matthew 7 where it's a judgment scene and Jesus is standing talking to those who thought were they were his faithful and he says you know come now those of you who preached in my name cast out demons in my name and healed in my name and those sobering words that strike fear in all of our hearts Jesus looks at them that live their lives publicly in great ways for him and he says depart from me I never knew you just examining that and examining that over and over in my head and you start to say, well, God is omnipotent, he's omniscient, he knows everything about me. What does he mean he never knew me? And you run to positional truth and you say, well, he completely knows me. I'm, I'm completely in the righteousness of Christ. I'm, I'm good with God because of God's declaration in my life. And, and that's true. But I think that passage is speaking of the human side of our divine Savior. Because it's Jesus speaking the words. This is a great opportunity through the study of this book coming out of a global pandemic, placing, facing other global crises as well as your own intense fires that are burning in your life, spiritually and physically right now, for us to be known of human Jesus. Human Jesus is human. He desires a relationship with you. When Jesus walked on the earth, he related with his family, with his friends. He built relationships with them. And his relationships were not only unidirectional communication from him to them. It required them to communicate back to him. Think about that. As you pray, as you walk, as you endure your trial, human Jesus, divine human Jesus, longs to walk with you through it. Share with him what's on your heart even though he may already know it and be amazed at what God does in your heart. Share with Jesus your deepest pains that you would share with your closest family member or friend. Walk with him. Walk with him. And he'll walk with you. And as you communicate with our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, who stands before us, before the Father on our behalf, understand that he longs to continue to relate with his Father and can bring the understanding of his Father through himself to you. Because he longs for you to know his Father even more so. Okay? got to keep that in mind it's not in my notes just on my head as I was praying and um, just keep knowing him all right do the best we'll do that together let's sing